0: This morning we're going to be talking about God's favorite doctrine, God's favorite reality, God's favorite truth. Out of all the doctrines there are, out of all the teachings there are from Scripture uh, about God, about the world, about everything, God has a favorite doctrine. And God's favorite doctrine is the sovereignty of God the godness of God, the reality that is the ultimate reality. It's the reality of himself, that he and he alone is God, that he and he alone is in charge, that he's above all else, that he's in charge of everything, that he's in control, that he is indeed sovereign. Stop and think about it for a moment. If you were God, it would be your favorite doctrine too. It's acknowledging the godness of God. The supremacy of God. His sovereignty. I think it was John Owen who said, When you speak about God's sovereignty, speak very, very carefully. Because you're speaking about the very heart of God. Something to that. The godness of God. It is a tragedy on the one hand that so many people in general do not believe in the godness of God. It's a tragedy even further that so many people who say they're Christians, out of all the doctrines, out of all the Christian teachings that there are, the one they despise the most, sadly, is the inchargeness of God, the sovereignty of God. On the other hand, Even though you're not God and I'm not God, I would want it to be your favorite doctrine, your favorite reality. Because if God is in charge, you're not, and you don't need to be or act like you are. You don't need to worry. You trust Him. that Even if you don't understand the circumstances... You don't understand how everything is working together. You can know that it is working together because we're talking about the one who is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, sovereign. Daniel 5 is going to be our text this morning. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me. My Bible's open to Daniel 5. If it's been a while since you've blown the dust off of your Old Testament, I can give you a little bit of help. Um, if you find the Psalms and about the center of your Bible, you'll work your way to the right uh, through some big books, some major prophets like Isaiah, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then you are right there at about Daniel. If you want to find Matthew and work the other way, work through some of those small books, working your way to the left, some of those small prophets, and then you get to the book of Daniel. And we're going to look at Daniel chapter five this morning. And we're talking about the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of God, the greatness of God. The historic event that that we're going to find uh, this taught in, that we're going to learn about, and eventually we'll seek some application regarding, um, would be uh, the rejection of the sovereignty of God. So we learn about it in a negative sense. Um, but we'll apply it in a positive sense later on. But we learn about it in the negative sense because there is a king who is rather bullheaded and he is rejecting the sovereignty of God and his name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is this Babylonian pagan king. Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's pagan name. Close, but not exactly the same. Um, And so this man is ruling, he is in charge, and he is denying the sovereignty of God. He's claiming sovereignty for himself. He's doing it in a high-handed, aggressive way, and God is going to show him just who is sovereign. Now, another point of historical note, just to kind of get things set up, um, there's about a 25-year gap, historically, between the end of Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. So with the passing of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, then you have chapter 5 with King Belshazzar, about 25 years or so is between. And that's because Daniel's picking up high points. Daniel's picking up the high points uh, in the the low time of Israel's history. Uh, The people of Israel uh, have been uh, taken captive Uh, And they're in Babylon and they're away from the promised land and things are difficult for them Things are trying for them as we learn about from Daniel elsewhere And uh, so just to give you a little bit of history on that those of you who are uh, Into the historical side of things if you're not just take a nap now check your email um, Do whatever you're going to do But just a couple of things historically about this Belshazzar is going to be called the king technically. He's not the king universal He's like a co-regent because his father is actually the one who's in the who's the king overall But his father is in Arabia ruling and reigning but in this region uh, uh, Belshazzar is called king he's referred to as king because in this region under his father's authority uh, he is king. His father's name is King Nabonidus. There will be a test when we're done, so you want to remember Nabonidus. Um, and then here's just a historical comment about uh, the gap between 4 and 5. Again, um, some of you uh, won't care so much about it, but I do want you to understand the the reality that it is a historical setting. After the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 562 B.C., he was succeeded by his son, Amil marduk If you're looking for names for your nextborn, that's a good one. Amil marduk or the evil Merodach of 2 Kings 25-27, for a short period of time, 562 to 560 BC. He was executed. Okay, maybe not a good name for your nextborn. Um, he was executed probably at the behest of his successor, nerig Lysar who ruled only a few years himself, uh, 560 to 556 BC. Nerig Lissar was succeeded by his son Labashi Marduk, who reigned for only a few months before he was executed uh, by the party that brought Nabonidus to the throne. Nabonidus is recorded as the last king of the Babylonians since he ruled until the time of Cyrus, when Cyrus entered Babylon and brought his kingdom to an end, 539 B.C. Okay, no more email. Um, We're going to leave the historical thing for now and move to our text. But kidding aside, I did want to fill in the gap a little bit, because I love to remind you that we are talking about history. Historically, God was very angry when people rejected his sovereignty. Guess what? We're living in history right now. And we're human beings like these people were human beings, with real birthdays and real names, living in real places. So we're not talking about mythological figures. If we were, it would be so easy to say, then I can reject that mythological doctrine. But we're talking about people like you and people like me. And God making it clear that we should see God for who He is. And acknowledge that we're not the authors of our own destinies. That we're under His sovereignty, His kingship, His rule. And there's either great, great comfort in that, Or it can end rather badly, like we'll see with this king, King Belshazzar. So let's jump right in now. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast. Then it says, For a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. It's a major party, a major event. It's not normal for him, as we would see with other kings, to eat and drink uh, amongst all of the people. But here he invites them. He has this big party, this big festival. Historians wonder, putting pieces together, whether or not this is to, to, to raise their morale, to get some encouragement going, or maybe it's sort of the Last Supper kind of thing, and let's have it go out with a bang, because what's going to happen in this chapter is they're going to be overthrown. I mean, it's imminent. It's, it's pending. It's going to happen. You could look out the windows of this well-fortified city that seemed indestructible for so many years and see the enemies coming. And so maybe it's an opportunity for one last party. Let's just go ahead and live it up because we're about ready to be wiped out. Or maybe it's, maybe we can have one last final stand and let's at least have a party to, to, to raise morale. We don't know exactly why, but you get the idea in the sense that it's all about to come to a crashing halt. We'll learn that at the very end because this king dies and the kingdom goes down. But in the meantime, they're going to have this great party. And that's what's going on here. Look at verse 2 with me if you would. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, literally it would be his forefather because it's not his immediate father, but he's in the line, his predecessor, forefather, ancestor, had taken out of the temple which is in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. I mean, in case you're kind of slow on the uptake like I am, this is where you're meant to go... Uh-oh. Right? He's a conqueror. He, or, or, or his forefather was a conqueror and, and conquered Jerusalem and took the, we might call it holy hardware, that was meant to be used for the worship of the one true God. And he says, you know what? Go to the storehouses and get those things that the Jews considered so priceless and get them and we will get drunk and have a big party using those things associated with the so-called one true God. It's high-handed. It's aggressive. Then he says in verse 3, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple. Notice the double emphasis. Let's make sure we understand this. The house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them, they drank the wine and praised, how about this, the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. It doesn't get more high-handed in your your -your in-your-face kind of rejection of, of the one true God. Not only are we going to drink from them, not only are we going to party using these things that were supposed to be holy, set aside, sacred, we're going to drink out of the gold chalice, the glass, and we're going to worship the gold God. We're just going to flex our polytheistic, idolatrous kind of mindset and worldview in your face against that Creator, Sovereign God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that the Israelites talk about. Yikes. He's declaring his own sovereignty. I choose my gods. We don't know how smart Belshazzar is. I mean, once as we know he's a complete nutcase Daniel 2 records a prophecy of this overthrow is he putting the pieces together saying this is that time I don't know some suggest that he is God's sacred things for drunkenness, immorality, rank idolatry. If he knows it, if he remembers what was said long beforehand, prophetically, it does just give us a little glimpse into the human heart that we already know about from other scriptures. God is showing himself to be God, this one true God is. Peek out of the blinds and see the enemy is about ready to take us down. Just as this God said. So what will we do? We will bow down, repent and acknowledge Yahweh, the one true creator God. Nope. Bring the stuff associated with this God. And I will mock Him to His face. Reminds me of what happens, as recorded in the book of Revelation, where where, where pe- people are suffering so badly and experiencing judgment from God so intensely that instead of saying, God, we repent, we, we confess you and acknowledge you and your greatness and your son, your sovereignty. Instead, it's, God, send the rocks to fall down on us and kill us. Rather die still cursing God than to come to God on his terms. Just severe and high-handed and grotesque. A rejection of God's sovereignty. Well, little does he know that the handwriting is on the wall. Now, some of you kind of just giggled, grew up going to Sunday school. Um, And the rest of us, may God help us. Or we went to Sunday school where they didn't teach us the Bible. But anyway, the handwriting is about to be on the wall literally and figuratively god won't be mocked let's keep going let's look at verse 5 suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing whether there's an actual hand there or it's a vision of a hand it's really happening Something supernatural, extraordinary is happening that's going to be verifiable and and we're going to read about it right now. Verse 5, Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. I'm in charge. I will flaunt my arrogance and my idolatry. I'm sovereign. Boy, the Jewish servants who might have been there who were... Captives of Babylon must have loved this, (laughs) right? They would have loved it. The most powerful man on the planet, with the exception of his dad, doesn't look so sovereign right now. (laughs) If you're a Jew, you're loving every second of it. we should see he doesn't look so sovereign now. Then let's keep going. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke. Just for a second, just to put your finger there for a second. In other words, shorthand, he's calling for the wise men. And just to help you put your Bible together a little bit better, when the wise men show up and you set up the wise men at your house around Christmas time, The wise men, it's these guys, the astrologers. It's where they come from, historically. He calls the wise men. Then let's keep going. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom dad me and whoever that wise man is now think about how big that is he he's dropping the ultimate offer i'm going to give you everything i could possibly give you he couldn't give him anything greater than that seat why would he do that? An act of desperation, no doubt. He wants to know what the significance is. And how about maybe there's some hope. Look out the window. Look what's about ready to happen. You're totally desperate. I will give anything short of my life to figure out what's happening because maybe it's a sign of how we can overcome the, the, the overthrow. And so it's a big offer. Verse 8 says, Then all the king's wise men came in. I bet they did. They, they came running. Right, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Verse ten says, "The queen entered, probably the queen mother, because wife wives are already there. The queen, as in the queen, the, the, the old lady. Right? The queen mother entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Verse 10 then says, The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy God's in whom is a spirit of the holy gods hmm she's been around the block she remembers history daniel then it says in verse 11 if we keep keep going and in the days of your father illumination insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or forefather, that is, your father, the king, maybe even a tinge of critical comparison here, I'm not sure, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and wisdom, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation." So for whatever reason, in 25 years, he's not in the inner circle anymore. He used to be top rank, and now he's, now he's not in anymore. Perhaps the you know the, the, the queen mother is, is saying, Hey, you know, you, you made a mistake there. He knew all the answers. But anyway, whether she's, he, she's into that or not, the point is, you got to get Daniel. He'll know. He can help you. Then verse 13 says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah? Whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination inside and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. Before we go to verse 16, uh, if his best servants are a reflection of who he is and his power, and they are, he's saying, I I, I can't do this. I'm desperate. My best servants, Guys can't do anything about this. His little tiny admission of his lack of sovereignty is about ready to get a lot bigger. But he's already, he's already copping to it. He's, he's already going down that road. He's already admitting some level of impotence. I like to think of him using that word. Verse 16. But I personally have heard about you. That you are able to give interpretations and some difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Daniel. That's what I'm going to offer you. Verse 17 then says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to someone else. (laughs) However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. I'm going to tell you what it means. I'm going to give you a little history lesson, even though you didn't ask. And I'm going to give you a little theology lesson too, even though you didn't ask. Now, as a footnote, it's not really related to this, but it is, I think, a worthy observation. Let's let's at least acknowledge that for 25 years, Daniel apparently hasn't been doing this sort of thing. And I mention this to you so you're not um, so held captive by false teachers that live in the here and now today that somehow want to make supernatural, miraculous, extraordinary things common everyday occurrences. You just don't find that in the Bible. You just don't find that in the Bible. God most certainly works in this world. Sometimes He works miraculously. Most of the time He's working providentially. Sometimes He works through individuals miraculously. But even the ones He uses, when we look at it in their biblical context, it's not ordinary. It's not ordinary. Just a footnote, getting back to the matter at hand. Daniel is about ready to help this man who rejects the sovereignty of God see and learn why he should embrace it as his favorite doctrine. Daniel 5.18 says, O oh, King, the Most High God, granted sovereignty, grant your glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And I, Verse 18 is, is, is worth the price of admission today. You'll have to pay extra for everything else. I mean, verse 18 is a great statement. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty. Let's just use um, the same word to kind of capture the, 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 the idea. O sovereign, verse 18. Because that's what king is. King is the person who's the highest ranking, right? O sovereign, O king, O sovereign, the most sovereign granted sovereignty grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. This is just basic common sense. I need to tell you, king, sovereign, where Nebuchadnezzar, undeniably a sovereign, undeniably a king, historical fact, where he got his sovereignty. And he got it from someone who was more sovereign than him. And you're crazy if you don't think that. Verse 19 says, Because of the grandeur which He bestowed on Him. God bestowed this grandeur on Him. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before Him. Whom He wished, He killed. And whomever He wished, He spared alive. And whomever He wished, He elevated. And whomever He wished, He humbled. Then 5.20 says, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, put your finger there just for a second, he thought that he was the ultimate sovereign. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. If you're... Glory, your reign, your rule, your power, your sovereignty can be taken away from you, you're not ultimately what? Sovereign. Verse 21 says, He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched in the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High, the ultimate sovereign is another way of saying that the Most High is ruler, the Most High is sovereign, utterly sovereign, capital S sovereign, totally in charge of everything sovereign over the realm of mankind, and he And he sets over it whomever he, aha, this is more sovereignty talk, whomever he wishes. Then 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You're living in denial. You, you, you know the facts. You're one of those guys that says, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. <laughs> Historical fact, and you, you know it. You know what happened to him, and you know what he did, and you know, you, you know this. Don't live in denial about God's sovereignty. He's calling him out on it. Learn from history. I, I want to say, okay, let's just stop for a moment and say, it's a good idea to learn from history. It's a good idea for you and for me here to learn from history, this historic occasion. It's a good idea for, for anyone, whether they're great or ordinary, to learn from history and to learn, most importantly, about the sovereignty of God, the Godness of God. I mean, let everybody be put on notice here today. It's a really good idea for you to know that you're not the author of your own destiny. That you're not in charge. Ultimately, God is ultimately in charge. It's a really good idea for people who are in extraordinary positions of sovereignty. It's a really good idea for people who are not in this room, who who are powerful in the world we live in. Or not so powerful, but let's just pick on the powerful for a while. For those who, who are the ultimate power people in the world today. To know that they're not ultimately powerful. And for them to think that they're ultimately powerful is for them to think insanely. They're in denial. They're in denial of reality and they're in denial of history. They're foolish. Doesn't make any sense. We're all accountable. We're all under God. Now again, by way of application, if you embrace the sovereignty of God, you say, this is wonderful, this is great, I can trust Him, even though I don't know exactly what's happening. If you're having a beef with the sovereignty of God and saying, you know what, I just... Well, it's really good for you to see this guy. There's someone greater than the king. Just, just uh, to speak... Um, as one American to other Americans for a moment. We kind of have a hard time relating to a king, don't we? Because we don't have one. We have a hard time even grasping sovereignty because we don't have a sovereign. And the last time we can recall having something like a king, we didn't like him very much. Justifiably so. But think about how hard it is for us as Americans to embrace the reality of a king. Because it's in our American DNA to despise kings. Because we are Americans. And sometimes it's hard for us, apart from God's grace, to go from rejecting any kind of sovereignty to embracing true, genuine, perfect sovereignty the sovereignty of God Almighty. But by God's grace, He helps us. There is a King of kings and a Lord of lords, the one true God who is to be embraced. Don't be one of those people who despises the sovereignty of God. Learn from this guy. It's a really bad idea. (laughs) Be one of those people, how about this, like Daniel, who believes in the sovereignty of God, which is what allows him to be bold. And to speak the truth. To trust in his God. To provide for him. Even in a bad situation. Because he's enslaved in Babylon. And what he's not doing is, Oh God, how could you? Oh, you must not. Right? He's not doing that. He's not doing that. He's serving where the Lord has him according to his... Sovereignty is what he's doing. Daniel 5.23 says, But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. We read our Bibles all the time, and so it doesn't really shock us, these words. But please just stop and think about what they mean. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Well, there, there there's no one greater than that, and you've taken aim at Him. How silly and stupid is that? It absolutely is. This doesn't even make sense. But then we go on. No, let's not go on for, just for a second. If you look at verse 23, but you, in contrast to... Your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar. I like to call Nebuchadnezzar an egomaniac. But Daniel would say, Therefore, Belshazzar is a megalomaniac. He's even worse than that crazy guy who denied the sovereignty of God in chapter 4. What are you thinking? You should learn from history. 23 goes on to say, And they have brought the vessels of His house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. How about that? Are you out of your mind? Yes, you are. You are. It's crazy. Then it says in verse 23, but the God in whose hand you hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. That's another statement of sovereignty, right? In whose hand are your life breath. Sovereign, 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 sovereign in charge of your very life. consequences come in verse 24 then the hand was sent from him and this description was written out now this is the inscription that was written out mene mene tekel you 26 says this is the interpretation of the message mene god has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it tekel you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient Paris, verse twenty-eight, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Counted, weighed, divided. There's a little bit of changing in wording. It's because um, there's a, a grammatical change. There's actually they're actually the same words. It's a change in grammar. But the point is, the first word means counted, and you were numbered. And it will be put to an end. Weighed weighed on the scales and found deficient and divided you're going to be conquered now verse 29 says then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued the pro- a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom sometimes pagans even keep their words And he keeps his word there Then verse 30 says, That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And therefore, embraced his own lack of sovereignty. Because everyone does when they don't live anymore. Right? Think about it. Well, there's something you can't do live another second and he already told him that his life was in God's hand it's just coming off the page sovereignty 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 then verse 31 says so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62 the city was actually taken by Cyrus but it was done in the name of Cyrus's uncle Darius The Mead. 539 B.C. Real time, real space. Historic event. Now let's step back and let's talk about the insanity to act as if you can get away with anything is insane. If you're five years old or 105 years old. If you're a peasant or a prince. It's insanity. It makes no sense. But now let's come over to the other side and and, and acknowledge that to embrace the sovereignty of God is magnificent. Because you're a person who's not living in denial. You're embracing reality. It's just real. You're you're embracing what's true and what's what's real. And and God is in charge and God is all-powerful and God is in control. And that has huge application. I mean, in one sense, I don't even want to go there. I just want to preach about the sovereignty of God and say, Go apply it. But let me at least prime the pump. If God is totally in charge of everything, that means... Profound application. You're not. (laughs) Okay. Now, if God's sovereignty is somehow, uh, like some religions would have God being sovereign, like in Islam, he's, He's in charge of everything, distant, disconnected, you have a form of fatalism. Because it's impersonal. That's not what Christianity teaches. It never has. Total, absolute sovereignty from a God who is also likewise personal. And he cares about people. And now we've got something else to apply. This great God is in charge. This great God is in control. This great God is the God that raises up kings and brings down kings. This great God cares about people. People groups, yes. But more profoundly than that, He cares about people. Like in Romans chapter 8, those whom He foreknew. It's personal. Or how about Jesus? How about Jesus when He was here on earth saying... Why do you worry? I'll bounce that ball to you by way of application. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, why do you worry? You don't need to worry. As Jesus talked about, your hairs are numbered. For some of you, that makes life pretty easy for God, but... um... (laughs) The point is, He even knows personally the little details about your life that other people don't even know. He's a personal God who is sovereign. And when those two realities come together, then we know who the one true God really is. He's the sovereign God who actually cares for people because He's personal too. And we so know He's personal because He became incarnate and came here. I love Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that all authority, let's use a synonym that's a fitting one, all sovereignty has been given to him and it's talking about the Son. It's no wonder he's called multiple times the King Sovereign of King's Sovereign. The King of Kings, the Sovereign of Sovereigns and the Lord Sovereign of Lord's Sovereigns. But you see, he cares about people to the point where he says, come to me. Come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. It's awesome. Awesome. It so burdens me that, that anyone would reject the sovereignty of God, but it so burdens me that oftentimes people who are the most outspoken about rejecting the absolute sovereignty of God The sovereign sovereignty of God are people who say they're Christians. I'm going to invite you this morning to leave the dark side (laughs) and come over and step into the light. And you say, all this theoretical, theological, doctrinal stuff, just give me something practical. Stop that. I can't tell you something more practical in all of life. And to see God is totally in charge, causing all things to work together for good. How about, that's Romans 8, but how about Ephesians chapter 1 where it also says, He's working all things after the counsel of His will. Sounds pretty sovereign. All things after the counsel of His will? And yet, in Ephesians chapter 1, personal, 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 personal. He chose us in Him. And He talks about the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit and how they've got this great plan of redemption for real people, personal people like us. I love the sovereignty of God. I want you to love the sovereignty of God. I want you to embrace it and say, why would I want to deny God is Godness? Ultimately shown to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. just awesome. Awesome to be able to think about. Father, thank you for our time this morning to be able to consider um, your nature. Thank you that Isaiah the prophet quotes you and says, I am the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. Lord, help us to not give your glory to another and certainly help us to not take it for ourselves but to acknowledge that you are the Lord, the self-existent one, Yahweh, the King, the Sovereign. And we're grateful that Not only are you sovereign, but you are personal and that you love individuals and you provide redemption for individuals. Open our eyes that we might see these things and praise you in a way that is fitting. Lord, thank you now for the opportunity we have to do what Jesus the sovereign said, that we would take bread and we would take wine and we would eat and we would drink until he returns. And that we would do so remembering what he did on our behalf. So thank you for giving us that we call the Lord's Supper. Where we're remembering the work of redemption. That the sovereign gave his life. So that he might rescue us. In Jesus name, Amen.